Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello and welcome to The Ghibli Attack, the podcast that dramatises the films of one of the world's greatest animation studios, Studio Ghibli. I'm Michael Leader and I've seen the lot of them. And I'm Jake Cunningham and I'm hashtag finding my spirit. So join us on our theatrical quest into the glorious world of Studio Ghibli. Jake, you're all hashtagged up. Yes, I am. Well... I mean, this one has been brewing for a long, long time, and we're very glad it's happening. Slightly out of order, but in a way perfectly timed, because in today's podcast, you had the pleasure of talking to Tom Morton Smith, the writer of the My Neighbor Totoro stage show. And initially, this was something that we wanted to set up before the stage show started its run. And then we were thinking, well, not a lot of people are going to get to see this straight away, so maybe we should let the run happen and then put this out. But then, perfectly, it got announced that there's going to be another run of this show anyway. So loads of people might have had the chance to see it already and are now going to hear from the writer about adapting it. Or there are people that haven't had the chance and can hear this and get excited about going to watch it. Although, I think at the time of this coming out, tickets may have already completely sold out. <laughs> Well, yeah, it's back at Barbican later in the year and tickets have gone on public sales. So if you listen to this, try your arm. Hopefully there will be some available, maybe for your second, third, fourth, fifth time seeing the play. But yeah, I guess doing this interview now, in some ways, the pressure is off. I'm thinking back to our interview with Basil Twist, who was involved in the puppet design process uh, uh, for for the production. There wasn't really much we could talk about because it was all Mm. shrouded in mystery. Whereas now almost a year on with a record-breaking successful box office run at the Barbican winning five what's on stage awards six Olivier awards you know you see it's safe to say people liked this show uh, so I guess Tom can relax a little bit uh, and, and, and bask in that while talking about it yeah and it is quite funny seeing now the reveals on social media about the contents of the show because when we were first talking about it and as you said even within the conversation with Basil Twist there everything was shrouded in mystery as to what this thing is actually going to look like I think before it came out we were thinking this is going to be more like a shadow play type thing where we're not really going to see anything and it's all going to be silhouettes and the the theatre of the mind will have a lot to uh, impact with but actually there's a lot that happens on stage and that's one of the incredible things about it and that totally wowed us on the night is how much you see and Totoro does come to life in front of your eyes and it's quite amazing and if you look at the videos that are now available or being posted to promote this new run some stuff is now being revealed but some stuff isn't and so if you haven't seen the show you might see now what how the soot sprites appear, which is one of the most ingenious elements of the show, where the soot sprites are kind of on the end of sticks, on the end of puppeteers' fingers. And all of those puppeteers are visible on stage and appear and disappear in a really wonderful fashion. And so they're not trying to hide them whatsoever. And it totally works. And that's something that they're now showcasing but key factors like big gray forest spirits with massive animatronic mouths um 
do not appear in any materials yet because that is something that you do want to kind of keep for the surprise on the night yeah I, I respect them so much for for keeping that mystery alive even years on uh, into its second run that's so exciting isn't it well we should hear from tom and what we'll hear about is how the project came to be his relationship with Totoro, how you approach adapting such a beloved film to the stage, the little tweaks and changes you may make along the way, and then also what Miyazaki and Ghibli had to say about that process. Unfortunately, due to a calendar upset, it's just me on the call. But Jake, you already had your chat with Tom, didn't you? I, I did, yeah. Um, and so I, I just sometimes you just got to keep a podcast for yourself. And sometimes a podcast is simply a chat on a train. And so it's very Ghibli, in fact. I mean, incredibly ghibli yeah. You, you, you harangued yeah. him on the tube. <laughs> yeah. And so I happened to be sitting next to Tom on the tube. And so I got my own private podcast conversation with him all about the production. Um, and so I felt there was no need for me to be here to spoil that conversation and repeat it. So I let Michael have this one. <laughs> we hear as well from Tom about his career so far, writing plays such as Oppenheimer, Ravens, also now developing screenplays. It's all very exciting stuff. I love that up until Totoro, he'd mostly been working in very serious, politically themed, physics themed theatre. And then he had the chance to embrace writing um, a stage play for a broad family audience. We get into that as well. So really, without further ado, we should listen to our interview with Tom Morton-Smith. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Tom, welcome to the podcast. Um, it's been a long time coming. Um, how's your last year been? Um, yeah, it's <laughs> it's been quite good. Um, uh, yeah, uh, Totoro, getting Totoro finally on um, felt like a, a, a huge, um, you know, it was the sudden realisation um, that actually it was happening, it was real, it wasn't a fever dream that I'd kind of made up. Um, I think um, the nature of um, writing, of um, working on something, you know, it's a relatively solitary thing most of the time. Um, and especially throughout the pandemic, when everything was done via Zoom or um, via email, it really felt like it really felt like I'd made it up, like I was just having a hallucination that I was adapting My Neighbour Totoro for the stage. Um, so to finally get it up there um, and open, uh, yeah, that was that was pretty big. And, f and for it to have been received as well as it was and, um, and the fact that it's coming back, it's, uh, yeah, it's been quite a good year. Thanks. 
No, it's 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 been it's been absolutely wonderful to see. You know, you know, we were very much part of that excitement um, to begin with. You know, obviously there's all of this smoke and mirrors about how it was going to be, you know, staged or the surprises that are you know still under wraps, uh, still haven't really been shown in sort of promotional imagery and stuff. But then to see how well it did and then how well it continues to do in terms of awards and acclaim and then coming back, yeah, we're so so pleased for you and the team. Uh, the, uh, for this success i suppose let's go all the way back to the beginning um maybe not to year dot but yeah. um how how did totoro first come on your radar um i first became aware of studio ghibli um so um it must i must have been at school and um and i remember someone i remember hearing about princess mononoke um, and I think some, there was like a VHS tape that was kind of being passed around or something. So I'm, I, I remember um, it being on my radar. I don't think I saw it. Um, but I remember um, kind of recognising the name of Studio Ghibli when Spirited Away came into the cinema. And I went, oh, I've heard they make good stuff. And, um, and so Spirited Away was the first one. Having been aware of talk of um, Mononoke, kind of that was enough to get me to buy a ticket to see Spirited Away and I think it was it was a pretty empty cinema um when I saw it but it yeah that blew me away it's such a um it's such a, a, a virtuosic is that a word um yeah yeah that'll do you know what I mean um it kind of uh, a film from Ghibli it feels like Ghibli kind of um firing on all cylinders and showing off everything they can do in one movie um, and that made me kind of want want to hunt out all the others and uh, you know early 2000s this was the time where you kind of still you might get things on DVD but you might have to hunt out things on VHS and um, and so I remember kind of tracking down a copy of Totoro um, but not much um, until a few years until they started releasing more stuff in the cinema um so i saw howls and um arietti and um pretty much everything after that when the wind rises um um and then kind of yeah and just kind of being they would it felt like it felt like my own private thing because no one else i knew was really interested or aware of it um, until the last couple of years where it's all kind of, I think, guess, I guess since being on Netflix and, um, and uh, it's just kind of become a bigger part of the um, public consciousness, you know, all the films being shown on film for all the time. And, um, and yeah, it, it, it's great because it's kind of like, oh, I, there's a, a slight kind of hipster attitude of kind of oh I, I was there a bit earlier but it's just delightful to kind of meet people who um who know what you're talking about when you say pompoco so yeah <laughs> no that's that's it's been really fun to see that happen in in our lifetimes in mm. our adulthood at least so when when you said that was almost your private thing was that sort of your taste in cinema as a young man sort of animation or world cinema or what was your sort of diet back then yeah, I mean, I've always um, I've always been a, a, a bit of a movie buff, but um, I used to hang around with a um, with a bunch of guys at um, university who were really into um, uh, well, they were really into horror movies, and horror was never really my kind of thing. But they um, they showed me, I think. Tetsuo the Iron Man and um, Audition and Itchy the Killer and those sort of things um, which um, uh, and Ringu obviously uh, and I kind of I, I kind of got me into Japanese cinema that way but I would never say that that those were my favorite Japanese movies um, so um, yeah I, it's um, I, as I've kind of been working in Theatre, I kind of, you know, that's where I've been. Um, that's kind of what I would say is my first passion. And cinema was always um, my hobby that I kind of obsessed over and 
found, you know, uh, go on weird little deep dives into um, the uh, the uh, the back catalogues of, of, of directors and things. Um, but yeah, it always felt like I, I didn't have um, I didn't have many friends who were who were really into cinema in the way that I was, and mm. so so it always kind of felt um, a, a, a slightly solitary kind of um, uh, kind of interest. Um, yeah, it, it's 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 a it is a very true thing about that particular generation or that particular age group where it was the more it's the Asia extreme generation mm. that's that was for many of us our introduction to all sorts of asian cinemas um via horror and then as we've grown up we've maybe mellowed and discovered <laughs> yeah. other, yeah. other filmmakers i mean none more different maybe than totoro and i guess that's where the love of film love of theater crosses over a little bit so at what point did totoro come on your radar within all that viewing and what did you think of it when you first saw it yeah, I mean, obviously it was um, post-Spirited Away. I think I, I must have seen Mononoke after Spirited Away. I think that was the next one I saw. Um, and I can't remember. Did I, did I find it on VHS somewhere? It wouldn't have been on TV that that early, I don't think. Um, but yeah, um, I, I remember... I don't remember the specifics of where I watched it, but I, I can certainly remember the... Um, the atmosphere that it kind of um, threw up, the um, how uh, gentle um, and ambient it is, how um, how it kind of um, it goes from these the beautifully painted kind of uh, landscapes and the um, and the beautiful music of Joe Hosaishi, um, and it just allows you to exist in that world for the duration. Um, and, um, and that was something that, um, that always stayed with me. Um, and, um, and whenever I had an opportunity to see it, if they were showing it, at, um, when they showed it at like the BFI or something, it was kind of like, oh, I, I got to go and try and see that. Cause I love seeing that on the big screen, um, because it's so immersive. And I think that's what, um, when the RSC were kind of asking me, um, did, was I interested in doing a family show at any point? Um, I kind of went, I want to do My Neighbor Totoro because, because I know that theatre does atmosphere so well. And I know that um, it does character so well. And, and, um, and, you know, and when you're sat in an auditorium and, the, and you're, you're watching a play, um, and you just let the world of it kind of um, uh, flow over you. It, that was, it's the closest I've ever got to that in cinema, I think, is in Totoro. And so they kind of feel, it felt like, yeah, I, I know how this would look on stage. I wouldn't necessarily know how we could do the big creatures, if you do the cat bus and the um, Totoros themselves. But, um, but there's... I think there's um, a connection between um, the atmosphere that the film manages to create and the atmospheres that um, the best kind of theatre shows manage to create as well. So is that, you know, talking even separately from Totoro, is that how plays are born in, in terms of the inspiration? Is it with a feeling necessarily rather than a, a character or a moment or a look or a line or dialogue? Oh God, I don't know. I mean, it's probably different, not only different from um, theatre maker to theatre maker, but it's probably different mm. from on, on play to play for me as well. Um, uh, so my big play I did before Totoro was um, Oppenheimer, which was about the building of the atomic bomb. And it was basically the RSC had invited me to... Um, pitched them the biggest thing I could think of because they wanted, you know, Shakespeare's famous for his epic history cycles and his um, epic battles. And, um, you know, they wanted new writing to kind of rise to the challenge that is kind of set by Shakespeare. So I pitched them an eight-play play cycle in the history of physics in the 20th century. <laughs> and they went, that's too big. Uh, pick one. And I, I picked Oppenheimer, which was is still a massive story, and it had a cast of twenty two, and it had music and it had dancing. Um, 
And that all kind of came from um, me trying to understand, having an interest in physics um, that isn't an academic interest at all. It's just, um, that's cool, that's interesting. And then you find out the biographical stories and the, the anecdotal stories around how these discoveries are made. And you kind of go, that's, that's something that's really interesting. Um, and, um, and that helps me to understand how the world works a little, a little better. Um, with Totoro, it's not too dissimilar because what I love about um, the film is that in the same sort of way, it's an exploration about, um, about kindness, about how people interact with each other, the characters. Um, and yeah, it's, I don't know, I'm trying to draw a link between um, <laughs> big, epic, Shakespearean kind of scale things and the, the beautiful slice of life um, emotions of, that Miyazaki deals with so well. Um, and that you see throughout um, Japanese cinema um, in certain strains of Japanese cinema, um, where the big thing is the character. And um, I, 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 Totoro is often accused of um, kind of not having a huge amount of plot, and people and that and in that way, people were kind of saying, "How do you make a stage play out of it if there isn't a huge amount of plot?" But for the characters, these are the biggest things, the biggest feelings they could possibly be having. The idea that um, you know May is a four-year-old or Satsuki is a ten-year-old coming to terms with the fact that their mum might die is the biggest epic feeling they could possibly have um and and that's what that's what draws me to anything is mm. um finding um finding a way to explore those epic feelings even if they in the large scheme of you know an infinite universe they they mean very little um I, I another player of mine called the earthworks is about the large hadron colliders that set Basically, it's a rom-com between two people, and they meet the night before. Um, they turn on the Large Hadron Collider as a journalist and a scientist, um, and and that's all about um, you know we're about to turn on the biggest machine mankind's ever made, but it's the small human interactions that are, are the most important things. And so in Totoro, you have these giant creatures, this giant fantasy, um, but the most important thing. Is the is the relationship between the two sisters, the relationship between the parents, and the relationship between the dad and the daughters, and the mum and the daughters, and um, yeah, so it's it's all about the t um, finding the big stuff in the small stuff, or the small stuff in the big stuff. It's, you know, that that is the magic that Miyazaki finds really in these magical lyrical moments that can be so magical but also can be so everyday and change the way we look at the world around us you mentioned there the um the the, the feeling or the, the argument that Totoro has no plots certainly if you were going to sit down with your hollywood screenwriter rule books you you you'd, you'd find uh, you'd have to mold it into a different shape but you then had to sit down with a blank page to start an adaptation so how did that process work out because it because it's still the same story but how did you actually put pen to paper yeah i mean i think the the interesting thing um in a, as a point of kind of adaptation is that um I, I remember the literary department at the rsc were chasing um ghibli to get hold of a copy of the original screenplay and there isn't an original screenplay <laughs> there's um there's miyazaki's storyboards um, so they managed to kind of um, send me, which have been published, and so they, they kind of sent me a copy of that book, um, and all the dialogue is written, obviously, in Japanese, kind of in the, the margins of that. Um, and then there's the, there's the uh, they sent me a literal translation of the Japanese, um, but there's also the, um, the subtitled version, and then there's also the dubbed version. So there's... So it never felt like the um, I was working. I was always working from multiple sources um, to create the English language stage play, um, which um, was quite freeing. Um, 
I mean, it. I feel like I've hit every moment, um, major moment in the film, um, and the, uh, quite a lot of the dialogue is recognisable from the film, even if it's not exactly word for word, um, the subtitled version or the literal translation or the um, or the dubbed version. Um, but I think having the freedom to kind of expand out of that allowed me to remain more faithful to it, if that makes sense. Yeah, so some of those moments I'm, I'm reflecting back on six months ago when we saw the production, they may just be little bits of dialogue here or there, or or an exchange between, I think, of Cantor and his father have a very, very beautiful exchange at one point. How did you find these moments to flesh out and how did you find that right balance between adding something for the stage versus honoring the original yeah well i think the the just taking a screenplay and putting it on stage is never gonna um it's never gonna work because they are two very different mediums and um what you're able to do in and i found this since i've been working in um, film and tv as, as well um is that the sequences that you work on um can in film can be several scenes long to kind of do the uh, that you kind of um, follow a shape um, of, a, of, a, of a sequence in on stage a sequence tends to be a scene that, that a scene has to have its beginning its middle its end it has to, the characters have to be changed when they leave the scene than um, than how they were at the beginning and um, and so that meant looking at um, Totoro and tiny little moments like the moment where um, Cantor is feeding his chickens and he sees in the distance um, Satsuki turn up with May and, and Satsuki goes off to school and May stays with Granny. And, and that's the scene. It's like a couple of seconds long. Um, but that moment was an opportunity for me. The, the way you t it's an important moment for, for, um, to have in the film and for the story. But it's not enough of a moment to directly translate onto, onto stage. So I had to expand that out into a bit of a scene. And it's now the scene where Cantor is having a conversation with his chickens um, is, is probably my favourite scene in, in the play now. Um, because you've got these fantastic kind of um, bobble-headed chicken puppets that are, um, that are kind of uh, having a conversation with, um, with Cantor. As in the um, Cantor was really interesting to um, to adapt because he is an incredibly inarticulate person, and he's inarticulate in front of um, Satsuki for one reason, and he's in, inarticulate in front of the adults for for other reasons. Um, but on stage, you can't just have a character be utterly inarticulate um, because it. Um, I mean, you could probably try, but I didn't want to have him be completely inarticulate. I wanted to kind of um, burrow a bit deeper into into him. So to have him kind of be fully himself in a scene where he's talking to chickens, where he could um, be as articulate as he wanted to be, um, was yeah. That that was um, it was nice to be able to kind of have that moment um, that exists in the stage version and not the film. Mm. And you mentioned the puppetry there. Of course, there's, there's so many moving parts within this production, you know, as well as the music and the puppetry. How much were you aware of that? How much of that is in the script, I suppose? Or how much is that developing alongside it or informing? Cause of course, or is it all in your head and you just get surprised as it all goes, goes along the process? I mean, uh, the first version of the script that I wrote... Um, where I was just concentrating on um, on on getting of turning the film as it exists into something we can work on in a word document or on paper. Um, when it got to the 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 big sequences, this is before we had um, Basil Twist, the puppet designer, on board. Um, I think it was before we even had Phelan, the director, on board. So it was kind of I don't know how we're going to do this. So I just write a cat bus turns up. I just, I, my stage directions are essentially just me describing the action of the film. And it's kind of, I don't know how we do this. Totoro walks on. Um, he's a giant kind of furry forest spirit. Um, a cat bus turns up. Its eyes are headlights. It's got rats for brake lights. And, and you know, it's, it's in, in many ways, as a writer, 
how they were to achieve those stage directions is not my concern <laughs> and I shouldn't get bogged down <laughs> with um, practicalities. I was always kind of expecting um, someone to come back to me and say, right, what you've written here just describes what happens in the film. That's not possible, so rewrite it into something that is possible. Um, but Phelan, the, um, Phelan McDermott, the director, he comes from a background of improvisation, and the big rule in improvisation is saying yes and um, running with it. So it was never, no, we can't do that. It's, yes, we can do that. How do we do that? And that spirit of, of kind of embracing um, every ridiculous kind of uh, fantastical moment of the film and saying, um, let's find a way to do it rather than see it as a problem. Um, it made my life a lot easier because I didn't have to go back and change all the stage direction. <laughs> and as an audience member, though, that the fact that you can always feel that sense of let's try it, let's do it, let's yeah. go for it. Uh, that, that, is, that sparkle is within the production. Um, so does that mean, I suppose, that your job as a writer then isn't just at the beginning, it goes all the way through almost opening night or, 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 or do you check out earlier on? Um, yeah, and I mean, I like to, I mean, I trained as an actor originally and, um, and I really enjoy being in rehearsal rooms and I enjoy being in tech rehearsals, which is a slightly weird thing <laughs> to, to admit to because they are deathly boring. Um, but I just like seeing um, the script that I worked on um, that I put so much energy kind of coming alive and, and seeing all these incredibly talented, skillful creatives um, and technical people uh, bringing that world to life is you know really exciting to me. So I, I like to be there as much as um, as much as a director will tolerate. And um, and with Phelan, who works in a very collaborative way, he if I could be there, he wanted me there, which was which was great, and it meant that. When we were having conversations about making um, certain moments work, I could bring um, um, an opinion to it on narrative and what tracks in terms of story that perhaps um, the designers, you know, who are suggesting things don't have and, and vice versa. So it was all kind of everyone was in the room at all times and everyone was allowed an opinion on everything. Everyone has their mm -hmm. specialities, but um, but no one's opinion was discounted. And that that meant there were... Because um, we were talking about... I think the Soot Sprites is a good example. Um, so we had um, these fantastic uh, Soot Sprites that were kind of, They were playing around with... And they're like... They're not pom-poms. They're fluffier than that. They're like... Um, they're made of, like, uh, feathers, I think. Um, mm. and, they're, and they're all on these... Um, like exaggerated Freddy Krueger gloves. All the different kind of carbon fiber rods that they're made out of, that the, that the, um, that the soot sprites are kind of suspend, um, attached to the end of, that come out of these gloves. They're all slightly different thicknesses and some of them are slightly different materials. It was a really subtle thing that meant that they all move, even though they're coming, coming from the same hands, they all move slightly differently. Um, mm -hmm. Just because the, the materials are slightly different on each one. Um, so, um, but everyone was kind of going, this is great. And they move really well. Um, these small, tiny little pom-poms, but you don't kind of get the, um, in the film, sometimes they have eyes. And we were kind of going, well, can we just put googly eyes on, <laughs> on them? Would that look right? And we tried that and that didn't look right either. And through discussion we have you know it kind of came out well let's have someone kind of um we'll have when they're all kind of coalescing in a cloud at the middle of the stage let's have someone come on with the eyes and kind of have them poke out um and that moment kind of came out of um sort of group discussion and i don't think you'd be able to kind of track who whose idea it was and that you know it's that sort of thing that kind of um it, it felt like everyone had a hand in that moment and Mm. There are plenty of examples throughout that did, yeah. Yeah, and I, th I think that sense of collaboration uh, within the group is was so evident across all the social media, everyone talking and sharing their stories. It's been really wonderful to see. Of course, there's one big opinion we've not talked about yet, um, or at least what the extent of it is. Um, 
what relationship did you have with Miyazaki and Ghibli in the process of writing the scripts? Of course, you had all the various versions to work from, but did you meet the man? Did you talk to the man? Um, yeah, so quite early. I mean, we, we, there, was, there was more kind of going to Japan planned that never happened because of COVID and the pandemic. But um, uh, we were invited over um, to Tokyo in 2018, um, that's me, um, the RSC's literary manager and the, and, um, the RSC's uh, lead producer on it at the time. Um, and uh, we went and we met everyone with, at Nippon TV and kind of sorted out a whole load of legal stuff. Um, we were taken to, um, uh, to uh, what is now the Studio Ghibli um, theme park and where they have right. had the, um, the Kusakabe house. And um, we were allowed to kind of, uh, so we visited that and um, to kind of get a real sense of, um, of, of, uh, of the world of it. Um, and then we were given a, a tour of um, Studio Ghibli's premises and then they were working on, um, they were working on Earwig and the Witch when we were there. Um, and, um, and we were, um, we met with Toshio Suzuki um, he let me hold the the Olivier for the, the Olivier the Oscar for um, Spirited Away, uh, which was propping up a bookshelf in his in his office, which is <laughs> great. Um, and um, we had meetings with Joe Hasaishi. And when we were um, there at Ghibli, we weren't sure whether Miyazaki was going to join us. And and we were all sat in this kind of conference room, and the door opens, and then he just comes in and sits down. Um, he um, he was intrigued, I think, by the idea of um, adapting it for the stage. But I think um, I think he's got a he's got a peculiar relationship with Totoro now. I think because it was always um, he he said that it, Totoro was always the kind of thing that he doodled in in the kind of margins of his school books, and to see it go from that to the um, huge great. Uh, um, merchandise uh, behemoth that it is um, that uh, that financially carried them kind of through um, difficult times in the 90s I think and um, I think he's kind of um, yeah he kind of he's he's it's been replicated and put on so many lunch boxes that um, that he I think he might feel um, I don't. I know. I don't know what his relationship to the character is anymore. But it's it's certainly different than than to, to what it was when he first imagined it. Um, the key things that he wanted me um, to take away was that a. Um, if it's going to be a play, it needs to be its own thing. It shouldn't just be a facsimile of a film, and that's great. And he was quite quite open to me, um, kind of bringing elements of myself to it. Um, and B, he wanted, you know, Totoro to be a creature of the forest in that it's not just a fluffy man in a suit, that it um, that he feels quite dangerous, that he could be a bit smelly, um, that his fur could be matted rather than kind of pristine, um, and that there should be a sense, sense of excitement and danger around around the creatures in the, in the woods. And I, I hope that we kind of managed to kind of stay true to that idea that he gave us and now that it's been on stage and received well how have the japanese partners responded to that were they happy with what they saw yeah i mean i mean they're delighted um <laughs> um we haven't you know um miyazaki will, uh, didn't come over to see it because he's a mm. he's a very busy um busy man obviously um working on his new film um but all the executives from Ghibli came and they were very pleased and um, there was um, there were still some fine tweaks um, during the um, uh, tech rehearsals and preview periods about getting the shape of um, Totoro's eyes just right. They're very particular about um, about about um, about every tiny little detail around that. Um, but uh, yeah, I think everyone's just delighted with how it's kind of mm. how it's done. So, did you receive much feedback as you were writing the scripts? Of course, think things like the the shape of 
Totoro's eyes is like a very specific detail, but anything on the sort of plot or writing side? Yeah, we um, there were certain um, lines um, that kind of uh, that so, that some of the producers kind of felt that no, we definitely need to have. Um, there was a long conversation around "You're the flower shop now, Daddy." Um, which I'd kind of taken out into a whole scene, but didn't actually say that line. And they said, you need to say the line. And I went, oh, okay, I've got a scene where they're, where, where they're playing flower shop. Is that, is that not, <laughs> not, not enough? And said, no, they need to say the line. Okay, I'll just put it back in the beginning. Um, so there were kind of some very specific things like that. Um, I think um, there are some elements where I expanded out from the film about... Um, with Granny's character, with um, by kind of drawing in, I was really worried about the scene. It's it's a very grown up scene in a family show, where where uh, May questions Granny about whether she has a sister, and Granny says, "I did," and May says, "Did she die?" Um, and that was me feeling that for the stage play to work, for the second half to. Um, to really kind of emotionally hit home, you needed to bring in the idea of um, of death earlier. You needed to bring in the idea of um, particularly sisters could die, you know, earlier. Um, and to do that through Granny, um, you know, that felt like something that was very important to me in order to make the stage version work, which is something that isn't in the film at all. And um, there was a, a little bit of um, rumbling from um, some producers about, oh, God, do we want to be... This doesn't sound like the ha happy, jolly, um, fluffy uh, kid show we were hoping for. Um, but I think um, the, more they under the more we worked on it, the more they read what I'd written, and when they kind of saw it up in, in practice, that it absolutely kind of feels right and feels in, within the world of the of the story to, to kind of just not, it doesn't delve into um, into too much darkness, but it does touch on it. And it's I think that's important in order to kind of prepare the audience for what happens in the second half. Yeah, it, it teases out a theme or sets a, plants a seed to grow uh, later in the play. Um, of course, how do you as a writer, what goes through your head as you're pitching a, a script for a play for a family audience, for a younger audience, and presuming that the Large Hadron Collider physics type <laughs> plays are for more grown-up audiences. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. What, what thoughts are in your in, in your head when you're writing for a mixed audience like that? Um, I think, I mean, this is the first family show I've written. Um, it's, um, I didn't treat it as any different to anything else. In to, to be honest, mm -hmm. it's kind of. Um, obviously, uh, it's, um, you know, there's no, I, 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 I wouldn't let myself swear in it <laughs> and, you know, um, and it's not going to suddenly get into, um, anything too gritty. Um, but you know, what you're doing when you're adapting is you want to capture the essence of, of something, even if the lines are completely different and, um, and the essence of Totoro, um, what it does so well as a film and what I hope that we've managed to do with the stage version is um, is tell that that you know tell a story that works on multiple different levels if you're a young child if you're May's age and you kind of come and see it then it's a fantastical adventure with some big furry forest friends um, if you're Satsuki's age then um, or similar then it's a coming of age story about a, a, a girl um, learning responsibility for the first time if you're um if you're an adult it works because you see it through um through the parents eyes and um it's about children growing up and and wanting to protect the idea of childhood and trying to protect them from the realities of of um of what the world is and what life is um and all the best children's uh, entertainment or art does that it allows it's like it's what Pixar does so well it's what um, Peter Pan does so well it's um, they they it's one it's it's one thing for the kids 
and then the kids will turn to to the, their parents and kind of go, "Why are you sobbing, Daddy?" And they're going, "Well, because I'm incredibly moved." And they go, "But it's a story about a a cat bus." And you go, "I know, but it's about everything." It's you know, um, I think trying to um, and the worst kind of children's entertainment is the stuff that talks down to children mm-hmm. and um, and underestimates them. And, um, yeah, and I hope we haven't done that in any way. Mm. It's quite a, um, a responsibility in some ways. This is going to be, and has been already, and is going to be more so, uh, many kids' first theatre experience. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so I suppose you've got, you got that. You're, you're going to make or break future <laughs> theatre audiences. <laughs> so, and it made me think, uh, was there a... Was there a stage production you saw as a kid that made you think that stage was something wonderful and magical and beautiful? I think it, it kind of um, it happened a bit later for me because I don't don't come from a family that's kind of was a particularly theatre going family. Um, it was on a school theatre trip, and I must have been sixteen or something, um, or maybe a bit younger, fifteen. 1415 um, and uh, we went to see um, a view from a bridge in the West End um, which we were um, studying in English I think um, and it was it was um, Bernard Hill you know captain of the Titanic and star of Lord of the Rings um, and he was play- playing um, Eddie Carbone the, the the main guy in, in view from a bridge and I, I was <laughs> I was really taken with it as a kind of um, teenage kid from Sussex, um, kind of trying to um, connect with this middle-aged um, uh, Stevie Dore from New York in the you know in this Arthur Miller play, kind of. But I think just the the liveness of the storytelling um, really really spoke to me, um, and it really um, ma- made me. Um, I, I can't remember who it is. There's a playwright who talks about um, theatre being an empathy engine, an empathy machine. Mm-hmm. It kind of um, teaches you to um, you know how to feel. It, you know, it breaks your heart safely, that sort of thing. Um, and um, film does that too. TV does that too. But nothing's quite so um, direct, I think, as live theatre for for um, for making audiences. Um, experience feelings they wouldn't otherwise feel um and so the thought that um that totoro could be a defining or early theater memory for so many people you know i'm i I think i'm allowed to feel a bit proud of that i think it you know it's not a bad one no absolutely and um judging from your instagram you probably have seen the play more than most people (laughs) maybe the most of any person yeah you um uh, sat in. I, I think uh, you, you tried to sit in as many different sort of aspects on the stage as possible. Um, so, watching it through its initial production so many times, did you? What did you learn about how the play was working, how it was working on the audience, and everything in between? Yeah, I think um, what they say about theatre, you know, it being different every night is very true. Some nights you get gasps when you see Totoro for the first time sometimes you get spontaneous applause sometimes you get you know awed silence so um, it was never the same twice I think um, when when children in the audience were laughing and then adults kind of joined in the laughing laughter um, in delight at the kids delight it was that sort of feedback is a good vibes feedback loop where you know you can feel it ripple through the audience, um, and that's that's kind of magical. Um, it changed over its run as the um, as the cast kind of um, you know, it, not that it got better or it got worse. It just changed the as the cast kind of um, uh, found different things in the characters. Um, with film, it's always the same performance. Um, I've seen I've seen as many um, Mays and Satskis on stage as I've seen it on stage. Um, mm-hmm. I I think there's um, 
There's another old maxim, which is if you write one novel and it's read by a thousand people, you've written a thousand novels. There's something about theatre where, um, yeah, you can kind of, there are, there's one Totoro, there's one Mei, there's one Tatsuo, there's one Kanta, but also there are thousands of them because not only is it multiplied by the number of people in the audience, it's multiplied by how many performances there are as well. Um, and that's, that's great. I love that. I mean, that's why I love um, live theatre so much, is that it's just ever so subtly different every time. Mm. It also gave me an opportunity to, um, to, I mean, when you're adapting something, a lot of the time you kind of, you, you're, there, there might be things, it's always difficult adapting something that's so loved because... Um, because if it's flawless, if it's perfect, what would you what would you change? But there was always one thing in Totoro that that I that bothered me that I was able to change, which is motorbike guy, the guy on the motorbike in the second half. Um, when Satsuki's there saying May's missing, um, have you seen a little girl? He says no. Good luck, bye, and he just drives off. <laughs> <laughs> and that always kind of went, what? That's dreadful. Um, what, what, what a prick. Um, so, so I managed to re- rewrite Motorbike Guy to be a bit more friendly and to kind of give her a lift back to the village, at least. <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> and that's the mark you've made. <laughs> yeah, that's my contribution. Yeah. Oh, uh, Tom, this has been really wonderful chatting. Um, what, what have you got coming up next? Is there anything you can tell us that we can look out for? For more of your writing are you going back into the world of physics <laughs> um i am i'm currently developing um uh, i've got i've got a couple of tv series that um that are in development at the moment um one of which uh is a bit further along than the other i've got a couple of um screenplays um i think i've got three screenplays on the on the go i think covid pushed me you know when th- theater was um all the theaters were closed and no one was commissioning but TV and film was still going. It's kind of moved my career in that direc- direction for now. Mm. Um, so I've got my first film in pre-production, which hopefully um, will oh. shoot at the end of the year. Um, but yeah, so I, I honestly, a bit of a break from theatre wouldn't hurt though, because I don't know how I top Totoro. I don't know how I do better than the Barbican stage, the Royal Shakespeare Company, working with Studio Ghibli. Totoro, working with Phelan and Basil and the cast that we've got, and working with the Jim Henson company. It's like, I don't like anything else. <laughs> what can live, possibly live up to that experience? So um, I'll take a little break from theatre for, for a while, I think. Well, yes, well, well, we'll keep an eye out for all those projects as they come into view. But there is one last question we like to ask all our guests. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if this is actually perfectly suited for you, given what you said earlier about how you like filmographies and bodies of work, because that's how this podcast started Mm. I was a big Ghibli nerd Jake hadn't seen any of them and I said oh you've got to see it because the Stuart Ghibli filmography is amazing in terms of how varied it is but how high quality it is how the worldview that is built across the films and since we then watched all of Ghibli's films we then looked to other filmmakers who had similar bodies of work that had a unique vision of the world or a distinctive vision so we did Satoshi Kon we branched out of Japanese animation to cover Henry Selick and Cartoon Saloon Mm -hmm. world animators Um, so we like to ask our guests um, if there is a single filmmaker or in your case if there's a you know, playwright or a dramatist that we should look to who has a body of work that we should look through uh, play by play or film by film in a similar way to Ghibli, who should it be? Oh gosh, I mean, it's always, um, it's a funny question because you get asked as a writer a lot, who's your favourite writer? And, um, and sometimes you say, oh, it's Arthur Miller or it's Tennessee Williams. Um, but there are also, they, you know, they've written stuff that's not good. <laughs> as well as the stuff that's really great. Um, but, um, but in terms of um, filmmakers, uh, gosh, I'm, I, I really got into, when I was researching Totoro, I really got into watching all the Yasujiro Uzo films, particularly his later films, the ones, the six he made in color are just mm. absolutely gorgeous. Um, and I was watching them because 
a lot of them are set in Tokyo in the 50s, and that's the world that Satsuki and May was coming from. Um, and, um, and yeah, and I've just devoured them. And, and now, now I'm a Yasujiro Uzo fan. <laughs> so work, work your way through him next, please. I mean, he has like 50 films before the advent of sound cinema, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah, he's got a whole silent <laughs> stuff as well. He, he's got all his silent films, all his black and white films, and then he's got his colour films as well. If you recommended, if you recommended one starting point, what would it be? Oh well, from Uzo. Um, well, you've got to start with Tokyo Story, I think, because that's the most famous one. But my my personal favourite is um, is uh, Floating Weeds. Oh. Um, the, the he made it twice, once in silence and once in once in silent cinema, and one in colour. And um, the colour one is available on YouTube. I think it is just the, mm. the most gorgeous film. Oh, Tom Morton-Smith, thank you so much for chatting with me. It's been such a pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you to Tom Morton-Smith for joining us on the podcast to talk all things Totoro and so much more, including recommending probably the biggest filmography we've been recommended yet on the podcast, Yasujiro Ozu. Jake, have you delved much into Ozu's filmography over the years? I've watched I've watched a handful, you know. I've I've watched a lot of the big hitters, um, but there there's so many of them um, that I feel like I feel like, you know, it's something like Desmond in Lost, where he has read all of Charles Dickens' books except one, and he likes to be reassured that there's always one more that he can read in a in a dire circumstance. And I feel like he's the kind of filmmaker where I need to apply that philosophy, gradually work through it over the course of a lifetime, but always have one more out there that I can watch. Yeah, I've watched all Ozu's films apart from 33 of them and I'm saving them (laughs) (laughs) for a rainy year. (laughs) But also thanks to Bethany of the Royal Shakespeare Company for helping us set up that interview, that long-awaited interview, and so glad we were able to do that. I'm really excited to see what Tom has cooking away in development. I'd read about a project that he's working on with a filmmaker called Juan Carlos Medina, a horror filmmaker on a horror film. Um, Juan Carlos Medina made a film a few years ago called The Limehouse Golem, which I thought was really terrific, as well as the Spanish language horror film that was called Insensible or Painless. I'd recommend checking that out. So that I can't wait to see what that looks like if that finally does see the light of day. Yeah, yeah, that would be really, really good. I mean, uh, this guy, he shifts around, doesn't he? I don't think anyone's thinking, oh yeah, the guy from the Totoro show is going to be doing a horror film next, but he's proven he can do it. But that is it for this episode. But if you want to hear more from us, we are, of course, always having conversations over on our Patreon-exclusive podcast, The Library Cafe, which is where we break out of the chains of Studio Ghibli and Japanese animation uh, to talk about whatever we like, really. And so in recent episodes, we delved into some comics we've been reading. So, Michael, you've been reading Aceadora. I've been going back and rereading Tintin and... I think on the next episode or whenever you're hearing this, it might have already come out. Uh, You're going to be telling me all about The Sandman, which is something I have not read, but something I have watched. And you're going to fill me in on everything I need to know about that show now that I've finished watching it. Absolutely. We also have some other things going on in our lives. We've just unveiled our next book project that's coming out sort of between August and September. I think just on the threshold of September, which is the... World of Studio Ghibli, which is our unofficial guide for younger readers to the themes and topics and craft behind the films of Studio Ghibli. It's been really fun putting that together after doing our 40,000 word kind of nerdy guides to then do something a bit more slim and illustration led and working with Lucy Zhang, who's an Australian or Australia based illustrator. Oh God, it was such a dream to work on. Can't wait for that to come out. Yeah, such a, and such, for us, such a different practice as well, because you've really got to focus in on what you want to say and make that so accessible in the language. It's a totally different exercise for us, but so exciting to do. And actually, yeah, maybe we should, maybe that's a library cafe down the line is, is how we actually write these things too. We should do that. 
Well, that's a conversation for another day. Listeners, thank you for joining us. If you want to catch up with us in real time on social media, we're on Twitter at Ghibliotech. We're on Instagram, ghibliotech.pod. And you can follow us personally. Jake's on Twitter at Jake H. Cunningham. And Michael's there at Michael J. Leader. Ghibliotech is produced by Michael Leader, Jake Cunningham, Harold McShill and Steph Watts. Our music is by Anthony Ng.